have already commented this morning and during the week as um, they became aware of my subject, uh, the title of my sermon, uh, Onward Christian Soldiers, But Beware of Friendly Fire. Uh, This really is simply uh, a very, very brief look at some basic training for the army of God's ordinary people. As you and I look around us in the world today, and maybe even um, kind of highlighted by some of the stuff that's going on in our own city and its environs, as we think about uh, not just what's happening at the festival time, but what happens in the, in the houses and the streets where there's violence, where there's uh, a breaking down of God's moral code. Just the way that people live together. There seems to be uh, a kind of invasion of darkness into the light of, of the gospel message and the word of God upon which our society was once very firmly founded and established. And sometimes we get into the, the whole thing about, you know, battling against the darkness and getting confused actually about who the enemy is. So I want as an introduction to look at our battle zone. In any theatre of war, you need to be able to identify your enemy if you have to render him inactive. And I want to apply that to the theatre of spiritual warfare, that you need to be able to identify your enemy if you're to render him inactive. And uh, for those of us who are professing Christians, who believe in God and are followers of Jesus, uh, we will have a clear idea in our minds about who the enemy is. The enemy is Satan, the arch enemy of Christ, the enemy of God and the enemy of our own souls. But also in a theatre of war, and there have been many... uh, instances in recent years where this has been highlighted, although uh, it has always been the case, that you need to be able to distinguish between the identity of your friends and foes. In recent theatres of war, there would appear to be an increase in instances what are known as friendly fire, uh, or uh, described, and the results thereafter described as collateral damage. Uh, I'm going to put up on the screen there for you, and I don't have a screen here this morning, so I just trust that all these things are happening behind me. Um, Collateral damage described in the dictionary is the destruction or injury beyond that intended or expected, especially in the vicinity of a military target. But I think sometimes the church suffers from what we're going to call friendly fire, uh, and uh, the result is a degree of collateral damage. And we'll come back to think about that later on. The enemy is not other Christians in the spiritual warfare against darkness. You know, the truth is, it's neither, neither is it the people in the world. They're not the enemy. God loves the world so much that he sent his only son into the world to save the whole world, to all of those who will respond to the gospel message of Jesus as it's preached. God loves people. God hates sin, but he does not hate sinners. Jesus uh, The man of God, God personified, God who came in human flesh. Uh, One of the nicknames that was given to him by the religious community was that he was the friend of sinners. God is for sinners, not against them. He's against sin, but he's for uh, those who are created in his image. The battle that you and I are called to engage in brings us into conflict, not with physical flesh and blood foes, but with spiritual forces. As a preface to his teaching about the full armor of God, Paul says in Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 12, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's the enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I want just to give a, a very, very brief summary. We don't have time to look at this in any depth at all. But let's just give a summary of what we know to be true from God's word. Uh, first of all, just looking at the opening book of the Bible, Genesis, which means the book of beginnings, the book of origins. And the opening chapter of history, or as I've highlighted there, of his story, because this is God's story about how he created the world and how he's dealt with us since our creation. In the beginning, we're told that God was there, and by his word, by his creative force and ability, spoke into being all that exists, with the exception of mankind, which he formed out of the dust of what had already been created. And right there in Genesis, God established immediately a special relationship with humankind, with men and women. They were made in his image and made for relationship with him. And as you read very quickly into Genesis, you discover that that which God made good and perfect becomes spoiled or soiled by the interference of one identified as, as the devil or as Satan coming in the form of a serpent and, t- and, and tempting Eve and Adam who was with her into disobeying God. And God pronounces judgment on the sin, on the wickedness that his creation uh, had disobeyed him in. And right there in Genesis 3, God says, even when the devil has spoiled what he has made good, he says, I will, I will come back on this in the future. And I will put enmity between my offspring and, and what you've done here. And right there, there's a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ that he will come and he will trample on the head of Satan and, and begin to destroy his, his empire, his, his building. And so right there, the spiritual battle begins in creation. God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, uh, and they're left pretty much on their own, but not completely on their own, because you see, there is, even in fallen mankind, there is the DNA of a moral code that is the heart of God's moral code. All of us, somewhere written into our, our basic understanding of who we are as humans, can respond to a moral code. Now, we see that... Uh, less and less in our society where morals are being eroded and we're becoming not just an immoral society but a kind of amoral society where anything goes. If it feels good, it can't be bad is the kind of philosophy of the day. And God, seeing the wickedness of men's hearts, decided he would judge them, he would punish them. And at the time of Noah, when he selects just one that he can save the human race through, We're told at that time that men began to call on the name of God, realizing that he is this worshipping creature, that he is built for a relationship with God. He wants to get back in touch with God. And God establishes through the Old Testament a pattern where he calls a people to himself and establishes them as a nation, not just to occupy a land, but to, to possess an inheritance in God whereby they can relate to him. But the whole thing is overarched by a very firm um, and very uh, strict set of laws and rules and regulations which Moses, as, he, as God's people come out of captivity in Egypt, is, is given on Mount Sinai. And so the law is established over God's holy community. But you must obey the letter of the law in all its fullness to be the perfect man, and no one has ever done that. And so God, realizing that the law in itself could never make a man righteous, he plans a better sacrifice than that of animal sacrifice in, in the Old Testament covenant. And so he sends Jesus to be the righteous, perfect sacrifice 
that will give his life once and for all to save men and women from their wickedness and from the judgment that they rightly deserve. And that's where we're going to start because um, the final book, you know, I don't know how you read books. I was taught in school, if you want to speed read, then you read um, uh, the opening chapter, you read the final paragraph of the last chapter of the book, and then you kind of skim through and kind of get the gist of what's there. Well, you know, the really good news is for us that it's, uh, that if you read Revelation, you discover that despite all the hardships and difficulties that the church faces against this, this tide of evil and wickedness that comes against us throughout each and every generation, is that ultimately we win. And I know you'll have been told that we win in the end. Maybe it doesn't feel like we're winning just now, but we do actually win in the end. And, and that should encourage us and cheer us up. But how do we get to that place of Revelation and the final chapter of his story? Well, let me remind you of what the church exists for. If I went round uh, with the roving microphone, or if I sent Mike Stark around, which seems to be one of his jobs in the chapel, with the roving microphone this morning, and asked you what the church exists for, I'm sure that many of you, not having looked at the screen, would, uh, would give me a whole lot of reasons of why the church exists. Paul says in Ephesians 3 and 10, that Christ's intent, remember Christ is head over everything to the church. Everything that you and I do in church comes under the umbrella of, of his rule and authority. He's head over everything to us. And his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Boy, that's exciting stuff. To think that we're part of an organization or part of a living organism here on earth that is to make such a clear-sounding uh, carrying call out to the heavenly realms that rulers and authorities and spiritual realms take up, set up and take notice. That whether in Charlotte Chapel or elsewhere as the church meets today, that we're sending out a clear signal that we're making known the manifold wisdom of God. That's exciting. I like being part of something that's got that kind of dynamic ministry. I don't know whether that excites you or not this morning. Uh, maybe you've been working far too hard at the festival and you just want to go home and have a sleep. Uh, but that ought to excite us, that we're part of something, we belong to something that has a purpose in God's authority. Now, I know there are extremes when it comes to discussing spiritual warfare, and we want to be sensible uh, so that we don't go over the score. But let me just look at these two extremes that, that people have when discussing spiritual warfare. First of all, there is the kind of demons behind everything versus demons behind nothing. In some circumstances, it will be very obvious that there are evil powers at work. We see that if we look into the occult or to witchcraft or pagan societies. But you know, there are other circumstances, even in polite society, where it might be more difficult to discern the motivational or the inspirational powers behind certain actions or words. Paul, for instance, tells young Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus, coming up against difficulties and, and, and tensions within the church and difficult teachings that it's hard for him as a young man to combat, he says in uh, his first letter, chapter 4 and verse 1, the Spirit says, that's the Holy Spirit, says clearly that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So it's even possible that uh, demonic influence can come into the church and lead those who are apparently following after God away and astray into areas of uh, uh, unproductive work. Now, I'm not blaming every bad thing on demonic activity. 
sins that are other enemies of our souls are our flesh, that is the natural desires that each one of us, you and I have, and also there's the world, that part of the good creation that Satan has influenced and made evil. You and I need to learn to distinguish or to discern between good and evil. Now, Paul, coming to this issue that we're going to look at two points this morning, Paul uh, takes up issue with the Galatians who have started well in their following after Christ. They have received salvation uh, by grace. But they're now in danger, apparently, of following a salvation of works. And so Paul has two very clear things he wants to say to them. You want to avoid the salvation of works because no one can work for his salvation. No matter how hard we try, no matter how holy we may seek to be and work at, no one can earn salvation. In fact, God's word very clearly says that the best that a man or woman can do in terms of their righteousness or perfecting their holiness just smells putrid in the nostrils of a holy God. So even as you think of the, 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 the best living, the cleanest living, the most moral person, the person with the cleanest speech, with the hardest works, Without Christ, that person is as lost as the most lost person in the world. Because salvation is the gift of God. It's not by works, lest any man boast. But it's by faith in the finished work of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And Paul had gone to this area of Galatia, part of the Roman Empire, and that's the gospel message that he had preached. And as pagans, as heathens, as Gentiles, non-Jewish people had heard that message and said, yeah, we recognize that God's Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sin. We turn in repentance from our sin and we receive the gift of salvation. And then it would appear that a group of Judaizers have come in and they said, well, now that you've become Christians, you need to obey the whole Mosaic law. You need to obey the whole Judaistic set of principles that God gave us established the holy community some time ago and one of these is circumcision and Paul's going to go on and argue that circumcision well if you take that um, as something that you must have done to you after you become a Christian then you've got to obey the whole law including the whole thing about animal sacrifice so the first point is attention stand firm in Christ verses 1 to 15 verse 1 summarizes chapter 4 where the theme is bondage and freedom Now, it also serves to introduce chapter 5. Paul declares that Christ is the great liberator, the one who sets us free from the bondage of sin. And then the apostle appeals to the Galatians to stand firm in that liberty. From having been delivered from the slavery to heathenism, they are in danger of becoming entangled in slavery to the Mosaic law. And, you know, I I kind of speak to myself in this, having been involved in church and church leadership for a number of years. I wonder sometimes if we put, and I'm speaking to other Christian leaders and those in a position of influence, I wonder sometimes if we put too heavy a burden on young Christians, on newly converted people, with what we expect them to do and how to behave, once they've come to the liberating place of knowing their sins forgiven in Christ, sometimes it appears to me that church, as part of the discipleship program, which I'm fully committed to making disciples, don't get me wrong on that, but sometimes I wonder if the expectations that we have of newly become Christians is kind of enslaving them to a form of our law about what they should dress like, where they should go, how they should behave, rather than letting the Holy Spirit of God lead each and every person to that place, still in the liberty of Christ and not offending Him 
But just because we don't like it doesn't mean to say that it's evil. And you and I need to remember that. You know, whether it's in dress code or, or, or musical tastes or whatever. Just because you as a Christian don't like it doesn't mean to say it's sinful. And Christ has brought us into this incredible liberty from our sins. And has set us free. And Paul says it's for freedom that you've been set free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And we're going to look at that uh, a little bit more closely in a moment. Circumcision in verses 2 to 3 stands for the entire Mosaic system. It's not just um, something that's done you know, in the snip of time. Excuse the uh, example. But it is, it is something that stands for the whole Mosaic system. If you're going to be circumcised, you've got to obey the whole thing, not just that one little part of it. And Paul says that if you do that, then you will be those who fall from grace. Now, falling from grace there in verse 4, in verse four does not mean falling from salvation. Just that I can pin my theological beliefs on the, on the mass there for you. I don't think that you can lose your salvation once it's been gained for you in Christ. I think you can live a very unprofitable Christian life if you don't keep in step with what God wants you to do. But if you're truly his child, you're his forever. Once you've truly secured that salvation that comes to you as a gift in Jesus. But Paul's writing to saints who have moved away from the sphere of grace and into the burdensome fear of the law. Watchman Nee says, law means I must do something for God. Grace means that God does something for me. By way of personal testimony, I was somewhere around the ages of 10 or 11 when I committed my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, went into an evangelical church and was told that I had to work then for the rest of my life being a good boy. That's rubbish. <laughs> Do you know, I just couldn't do it. I found the Christian life was absolutely impossible. The expectations that my seniors and my peers and my parents had over me were just completely impossible standards for me to live up to. Sure, I'd committed my life to Jesus. I'd surrendered my life to him. But no one ever told me about the provision of the gift of the Holy Spirit who actually makes living the Christian life possible. At uh, Christianity Explored uh, sometime last year. Where are we now? Yeah, earlier this year. Uh, I remember telling the group that were there that the Christian life is impossible to live. In fact, it's so impossible that Jesus Christ himself in the flesh didn't live it, apart from his relationship daily with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look a little bit more about that in conclusion today, about what it means to live in, energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can't live the life that God expects us to live in our own strength. And as a young Christian, I completely floundered, went off the rails, went into a time of backsliding and an estrangement and away from God, away from church, bucking authority and rebelling until God, when I was 18 years old, back, brought me back to a place of repentance and said, I never intended you to live this life on your own. I want to give you myself as the energy, as the means whereby you live as a Christian. I've set you free, Rodney, and I live in the freedom that I've, I've bought for you. And maybe you're a young Christian here today who thinks, you know, I just can't ever be as good as some of these uh, great saints and, and, and mature Christians here in Charlotte Baptist. Well, you're absolutely right. And if they're truly mature saints and, and mature believers, then they didn't get there in their own strength either. They only got there through the strength that God gives them. 
These people were in danger of going back to law. But Paul pleads, no, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm in Christ and in him alone. And then he gives a very stern warning. Let's go back to what I said about friendly fire that often results in what is commonly referred to as collateral damage. In our reading, we have these words. Galatians 5, if you want to look at them or follow them on the screen. Verse 13, following. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Watch verse 15. I've highlighted it there on the screen. It's because it's important. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Let's just pause for a moment. Consider what happens if one individual in the church considers himself or herself better than an other. Or consider what happens when one organization in the church reckons that they should always have first call on the program or the premises or the people. We start to undermine the importance in the ministries of others. Or if you will consider what happens if you persistently chip away at the anointed ministry of someone who is called to be a leader with the gifting and to equip God's people for works of service. You can end up destroying God's servant and rejecting the gift that Christ has given to his church. All of us know the principle of chipping away. You don't have to be a woman, although some are good at it, to know what it is to nag someone. We guys do it as well. Nagging someone never ever accomplishes a good purpose. If you haven't learned that already, then someone needs to take you aside and just show you the destruction of constantly chipping, nipping, biting, nagging away. And that's just at a secular level. When you start to do that stuff spiritually, Paul says, be careful. The circumcision party are saying, oh yeah, no, we know you're Christians, but you've got to be circumcised. And, you know, you can combat that stuff for a while. No, but I feel such liberty in Christ that I'm set free from the law. No, but you've got to be circumcised. And they just keep on nagging, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. Paul says, be careful, folks. Be careful of what you say to each other. Be careful about the way that you use that tongue. Be careful about the way that you do that. Because you can actually end up destroying each other. The word devour is the same word used in the parable of the sower when the birds eat up the good seed thus preventing it reaching its full God-given potential. You know, the only positive word, uh, time that this word is used in, in Scripture, as far as I can find out, is when it is used for the zeal that consumes, or the zeal that devours Jesus at the temple, when he clears it, saying that it should be a house of prayer, rather than the den of iniquity. All other uses of the word are in a negative form of destroying something. Now remember how Peter also warns us to be vigilant because the enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Paul said, be careful about the way you bite at one another. You'll end up doing the devil's work for him. Wouldn't that be an awful situation? 
the Greek word is, is the word dachno to bite. I was going to tell you that I, I do know a little Greek and that he has a restaurant just off Hanover Street, but that would just be silly. Um, the, the Greek word dachno means to bite with the teeth, or, or, or metaphorically, it means to wound the soul. To bite, to wound the soul. Those that God has set free in Christ, why would we want to wound them? By telling them they must obey something other than God, given spirit-led freedom as they develop as Christians. Now the antidote to the spiritual cannibalism as I see it, is found in the remaining verses of our reading. And uh, we'll just look at them briefly together in verses 16 through 26. Quick march, walk in the spirit. The first command is stand firm in Christ. Attention. The second command is quick march, walk in the spirit. Or maybe it's actually slow march, because sometimes the Spirit is in no hurry to get us to where we know we're going to end up. Sometimes God slows us right down rather than quick marches there. Paul's first admonition was to stand first, and now he says walk in the Spirit. Our standing in Christ determines our walk in the Spirit, someone has said. Now the words flesh and Spirit are found ten times in chapter 5 and 6. And those who live according to the law depend on the energy of the flesh. Those who live according to the pattern of the law depend on the energy of the flesh. And that's hard work. It's hard work trying to be a good Christian. It's hard work trying to live a good moral life. It's hard work trying to do the things you know God wants you to do if you do it in the energy of the flesh. But those who live by grace depend on the power of the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit simply means to have our daily lives under his control. And this means under the direction of God's word, God's spirit will never ever lead us to do something that is in contradiction to God's word, either to the letter or to the principle. God's spirit will never ever lead us into a lifestyle or practice that is contrary to what God has revealed is good for us in his word. Remember the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son? I see him as someone who lives in bondage with no joy in his walk or service. And so he can't understand the liberty that the father expresses towards the younger son when he returns and comes home in repentance. The older one's sitting there and he's gloomy and he's miserable. And uh, sadly, how many Christians I've met remind me of that older brother that don't know anything of the liberty and the freedom of standing in Christ and walking in step with the Spirit. The flesh... Uh, in the Bible, refers to the fallen nature still with the believer. It's not talking about the body itself. This, this isn't intrinsically wicked. Uh, it's just corruptible. It's mortal. Uh, the bodies in which you and I live will die one day and will, will, will disappear back to dust uh, from which we were formed. But the flesh referred to in the Bible is the, the, the nature that we inherit from our sinful ancestors. And the appetites of that sinful nature have the tendency to go downward. We're going to put up on the screen just a comparison of the two lists. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, uh, and we read through them there, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, etc., etc., etc. But you notice it's not a completely exhaustive list. Paul finishes by saying that's the obvious things that the spiritual nature will enact through you if you allow yourself to be led by the old fallen nature. And he says, and it's the light. Now, some of us might look at that and say, well, you know, I'm not sexually immoral, or I don't practice witchcraft, but what about that hatred stuff? What about that discord stuff? 
What about the fits of rage? What about selfish ambition? You know, ambition's not wrong. Ambition's good. But we can have a selfish ambition, which is the, the result of the old nature. And then he goes, and the like. It's not an exhaustive list whatsoever. But then contrast that alongside with the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, it's the singular fruit, not fruits. Some people like to think that they're Spirit-filled because they have love. No, you've got to have all nine elements of the singular fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That stuff grows on you when you allow the Holy Spirit to get inside of you and to deal with the old sinful nature and to work his, his harvest out to the surface of our lives. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not well understood in certain parts of the church because congregations are not well taught about who he is and what he does. The number of evangelical Christians that I've come across in the last 20 years who keep referring to the Holy Spirit as it or an impersonal force. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's God. He's no less God than Jesus Christ or the Father. And yet, in Christ's church, we don't give the Holy Spirit the honor and the place he deserves for somehow thinking that somehow he's subservient to Christ. No, he's not. He's in very essence God. And God wants to come and to live in us and to through us and to, to come upon us so that the Christian life is no longer impossible, but actually becomes this natural or supernatural day-by-day reality as you and I keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus uses three verbs in relation to the noun Holy Spirit when he talks about him. Uh, and again, just give you this so you can go home and read about it and think about it and the implications for you and for us as a church and for the whole Christian community. In John 14, Jesus says, The Holy Spirit will be with you. He will be in the world with you, convicting the world in terms of righteousness and judgment, uh, bringing conviction, if you like, to the world. For those of you who like alliteration, I'm going to give you three C's. The Holy Spirit is with you in the world to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In the same verse, Jesus says, he will be with you, but he will also be in you. The work of conversion, second C. The Holy Spirit comes in to convert us. We don't do it in our own energy. But we allow God, the Holy Spirit, to come in and and change us. Come right into the heart of our being. And from there, begin to work out in sanctifying purposes until he gets all of our lives under his control. And Jesus also uses a third verb, construction in connection with the noun Holy Spirit. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will be with you in the world to convict. He will be in you to convert. And he is also available to come on you um, and for the sake of alliteration, to clothe you with power. To live this life. To witness for him. And that's Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. That's not some, you know, wacky, way out, right-wing charismatic saying, oh, I need to... You know, that's Jesus saying, that's what the Holy Spirit will do. That's how he works. And maybe some of us know very well, and, and you know, from our evangelical conservative perspective, we say, yeah, we know the Holy Spirit's got to bring conviction. We know the Holy Spirit's got to bring conversion. But we'll stop short of saying, and in order for us to witness for Christ, we need the Holy Spirit to clothe us, come on us, in power, to give us that energy. So, onward Christian soldiers, beware of friendly fire, stand firm in Christ, 
If you're not rooted and established in him and you want to know how to become a Christian, then please do speak with us. Having become a Christian, if you find it difficult to find the energy and the strength to go on and to live that life that God intends for you to live, well, keep in step with the Spirit. And if you don't know how to pray to receive the Holy Spirit in that way, then again, speak with us and allow us to pray with you that God might equip us to be the congregation he wants us to be. So in conclusion, the result of all of this, we will see that we have true comradeship. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Now since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So Christian soldiers, onward, identify the real enemy. Stand firm in Christ, keep in step with the Holy Spirit, be united in true spiritual comradeship, and we will take the world for Christ. Amen? Amen.